Welcome to Always Authors, the literary podcast that presents two authors in candid conversation. On this episode, we're excited to bring you Andre Asiman, the New York Times best-selling author of Call Me By Your Name, which was made into an Oscar-winning film starring Timothy Chalamet, and Homo Irealis, his newest collection of essays. Andre is joined by Edmund Duval, a world-class ceramicist who is the author of the New York Times best-selling memoir, The Hair with Amber Eyes, and most recently, Letters to Camondeur. They'll discuss their work, lives and passions, and they cover it all, from Penthouse to Proust. Inspiration starts now. Hello, my name is Andre Asiman, and I'm very, very pleased to have a conversation with Edmund Duval. And it's a great pleasure to be here. It's such a huge pleasure, um, Andre, um, to, to be in the same space as you, finally. And I'm hoping this is a, a sort of lock-in together with book, in a library for, for at least a week. So um, there's a lot to, lot to catch up on, a lot to talk about. Okay. <laughs> anyway, well, we started on the right note, which is missed encounters, things we... We never met, and I know we're both big fans of each other, in part because our trajectory may be totally different, but I, in, in, in essence, it's identical in many ways. Been in many places, a lot of history behind us, and, uh, and we're just the mouthpiece for so many other people who are no longer on this planet. I mean, that, I suppose, is, is, a, is the beginning and the end, isn't it? For us, of a conversation, which yes. is, you know, all those deep questionings of belonging, of migration, of diaspora, of uh, of of which language you dream in. I mean, all, all these things are, are, are things that, that that are profoundly within your work and within your life. I mean, I, you know, I I have to say. Right up front, Andre, of course, that I am an enormous, enormous fan of yours. And that it's, that there's a huge, huge pleasure about being, you know, seeing you there, in, wherever you are. I have no idea where you are in the in world. In New York. <laughs> in New York. I'm seeing you in New York. You know, you're, you're there. I can think it's the morning with you. It's the afternoon here. Uh, the sun is coming to my studio. And I've spent since this invitation came in, a, 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 a marvellous 10 days reading you, thinking about this conversation. Uh, I have in my hands your new essays, which I've been devouring. Oh, oh homo irrealis. Um, um, and, and, and making endless lists of, 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 um, of, of, of people who we share. <laughs> so... I have no idea where we're going to begin, but but we share. We do share a lot. Well, it, it, it's amazing. One of the authors that you seem to like a lot, and I mean, aside from Proust, which whom we'll touch on, I'm sure, but it's Virgil and Ovid. And I happen to be a huge fan of Ovid. And I've just reread the entire Aeneid this summer uh, in a wonderful translation that is totally untouted by the father of Daniel Day-Lewis, uh, who's, ah, who's a great, wonderful that great translation. Yes. It is a yes, fabulous translation. Yes, and it's, it's actually stunning, and I was in love with it. So 
um, I mean, we start with antiquity, don't we? I mean, in a way, you certainly do. Well, <laughs> well, we should. I mean, perhaps that's the first thing to say is is that you know it, it's completely unfashionable to talk yes. about bedrock, the bedrock. It's you know, I'm not sure how far that would get us in a lecture hall. But 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 actually, you know, why why shouldn't we try? start with Virgil or, or, or start with Ovid, you know, um, because, uh, you know, all those um, lines of thought, all those cadences uh, keep weaving in and out of, of, of the last 2,000 years of, of all kinds of things that matter to us, stuff to do with memory, stuff to do with, well, I mean, Ovid, stuff to do with, 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 with exile, um, you know, so, so going back, and starting again with them seems to me an extremely good idea. Well, it, it seemed to make sense to me, um, in good part because you do mention, I think at the very end of the book, which I had to reread again, um, was the, uh, the the Tristia, his poems that he wrote when he was in exile. Was it Bulgaria? I forget now where it is exactly. But it was a dark corner of, of the world at the very fringes of the Roman Empire, and he was very miserable, and he died there, simply because of maybe something he saw. We're never quite sure what it was. But here's a great poet who wrote about desire in a way that still, until today, is almost as lascivious as any other writer that we know. Yes. Uh, and in fact, it has influenced most of Western art. There's no artist who has not, in one way or another, painted a scene from Ovid, as far as I can. I, completely, and I, I, I mean, there's, you know, we had an exhibition here of Titian in the National Gallery recently, and and um, you know, you 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 felt you felt how saturated he was. Um, by with Ovid, you know, Ovid was was present um, in all those sort of stagings of desire. Um, but but Tristia, yes, Tristia, Tristia is. I, I don't know if you remember that Tristia was the, the 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 starting point of my library of exile that you came and uh, experienced in in, in Venice. The, this this collection of of it began as two thousand books and ended up as for God's sake, four thousand books. <laughs> um, um, but but I began that that idea of, of a literature of exile by placing my grandmother's copy of Tristia in the library, and that was that was that was absolutely the kind of keystone um, f for me of, of of beginning to think about what what an exilic literature might mean, what what it might mean to be. To, to be elsewhere, to have that elsewhere, to be writing, uh, writing home, in a sense that, or, or, or writing ab about about a, a lost possibility of return, uh, which is what Ovid, Ovid does in Tristia, uh, a return to a place, but in, and a return to love, um, and that that kind of crunching together of of of, um, of 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 place and displacement. So so Ovid. That book, Tristia, is for me the, the beginnings of our whole thinking about, about where we belong. I think it's, you're totally right. And uh, I also know, I mean, uh, one of the things that I, I liked about your book 
the hair with amber eyes, it's, it's especially that you take time off whenever you tell a story about the past to locate yourself, to situate yourself in the city, looking at the building or looking at this particular Mitsuke, look, looking at this or that, because you're trying to say, this is part of who I am, this is part of my family, this is part of what I could have been, but never was. And of course, I can walk back and try to, to use that horrible word, return to this other thing, this other place, this other time. But that's not long, no longer possible. There's been some kind of ravagement that has gone on. And the people have died and they're gone. And you can't come, you can't even come to a reckoning with them to essentially um, bring them, bring their voice back. And it all boils down to, as you also say, I don't know if this is a metaphor or not, but to a tiny little statuette, very, very small. And it all boils down to just that, that you can put in your pocket. Uh, as if our entire past was a kind of pocket book, a pocket version of the, of the lives of many other people, many, many other people, and many other places. Can they be reduced to something? Of course not. And so there's always a sense of, of deploration wherever you go to look at things. And you have a sense that it happens, I'm alive, I have a family, things are okay, but the grandeur, the promises of the past have been totally erased and have not been kept. Um, in, in that sense, I'm also reminded of another author whom you don't mention, but I, I suppose you will mention or you have mentioned elsewhere, which is W.G. Zebald, uh, who is... I, I, I'm raising my hands here. I mean, we have to talk. We have to talk about Sebald. <laughs> we have to talk. And indeed, you do in your beautiful new book. Uh, you do write an extraordinary essay on him, Andre. And I think you write it also, you wrote about the emigrants, didn't you? When, when, when it first came out, first yes. Came out. How do we unpick this? Because, you know, um, we've got this whole... Um, sense of, of um, this shared, we've got this shared thing here, haven't we? Just, just in front of us, which is out of Egypt. We've got your, we've got your own extraordinary mapping of, of your own family history, of, 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 of how you can, uh, with dignity and, and with, um, um, with accuracy, um, uh, unflinchingly um, talk about loss, talk about it without nostalgia, without, without the lens, that kind of, that kind of greasy, uh, soft, focusy kind of way of, of, of um, you know, um, which actually is, a, is a, a terrible sin to kind of inhabit inhabit the lived the lived experiences of your parents your grandparents my parents my grandparents great grandparents and the places they were and, and make it and make it a, a sort of a faux saccharine you know uh, life because it was it, 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 it's it's reality your reality my reality is that it is that it, it was beautiful and complicated and to to write about it without sentimentality without melancholy but knowing that the trope of melancholy is possible is bloody difficult this will get us to say <laughs> i promise you 
But how did you start? I have to ask you, Andre, did you know you were going to write that book? Did you know that you had to write out? How did that happen? I've always wanted to ask you this. Oh, no, it, it's so plebeian and, and, and so um, <laughs> pedestrian, really, the way I started, because I, I knew I wanted to write something. I was going to write a book about how to quit cigarettes, which I, I was an avid smoker for many years. And I spoke to a publisher and I said, you know, I want to write this book because I can really make it happen, having quit myself. And she said, that's a great idea, Andre. Do you have any other ideas? I said, well, yes, I could write about my past as a Jewish boy growing up in Egypt during the time of rabid anti-Semitism. She says, write that. <laughs> and, and I said, I'm going to go home and start it. And I started it because it was a joke. It was, it was really easy to write. It was not difficult. So long as I did what you have recommended, as long as I kept, I didn't grease the lens, which is what, if you remember, Penthouse used to always grease their lens to give the naked women a particular sort of erotic aura, which... A, sort of frank picture would not have. And, and so I, I decided that I'm going to attack nostalgia. I don't want to be nostalgic, but you can't write about this without being nostalgic. So the way I, I suffused it is with, um, or diffused it, sorry, it was with uh, humor yes. and irony. Absolutely. I'm always being ironic. Yes. Yes. Because, and you, you haven't gotten, you, you were not uh, sentimental at all in your book. In other words, where maybe your way of avoiding it was by speaking about those Japanese sort of yes, Nitsuke statuettes. Yeah. That was your way out of this sort of lacrimose nostalgia <laughs> yes. that we're all, we, we live with it. I mean, it's not incidental to our lives, but it is not something we like to invoke. And so we avoid it. And so I did it with irony and humor and making people sometimes look more beastly and more ridiculous and stupid than they actually were. But this was my out. And, uh, and I think that you have another out. It's such an important out. I mean, you know, that, um, you know, and I'm so conscious when I read you of, 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 of voice, of your voice there in that book. You know, um, it, 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 it's... What's extraordinary about it is that, um, and perhaps we will get to Irrealis as an idea <laughs> you know, in this conversation, um, is it's exploratory. It doesn't feel like, it, 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 it feels like you are, it's, it's the act of remembering. Um, I mean, it's, it's the, it, that's why it works so profoundly, is that it's a, it's a, it's a transitive act, this, 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 encounter of, of memory it's not a it's not a it's not a it's not a given that you've just sort of which you're recounting it's it's the act of remembering which of course is an act of of, of re-witnessing of, of making something possible for people to to, 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 to explore themselves it seems to me a kind of obligation in this kind of writing I mean it's, it seems to me that that's that is an essential part of it, that it isn't a sort of um, a sort of gilded age <laughs> recollection. No, I mean, it's, it, it cannot be. And, and I, think, I, I think we both are we're aware of the dangers of this. And uh, one of the things, and I noticed it in your book, 
as well is that you are constantly I mean you, you have moments when you actually catch yourself almost a sort of turning plangent and you you cut yourself off by using usually and I notice it in style because I'm always interested in style and you have a wonderful style but one of the things that you do is that you sometimes use an idiomatic phrase uh, when you say, for example, I'm just going by memory now, and that was it. Yes. You know, what a blunt way of saying something, but it basically prevents you from going into the, the this dimension, which I think both of us knew that we had to avoid. Otherwise, we were writing, which a lot of people write. I mean, you as well as I do, uh, get memoirs sent to you sometimes, I'm sure, of people who have been through the war. In the Second World War, and were basically survivors of one fourth, and usually they're filled with tears, teary material, which is felt and sincere, but it doesn't make for a good book. It doesn't. It doesn't. And actually, do you know, I, I only read him after I'd finished my book, but um, the Austrian writer Jean Amery. Do, do do you know his work? Yeah, Isn't oh gosh. He extraordinary? Yes, very extraordinary. well. And, and there's, an, there's an extraordinary essay he writes right at the very end of his life, before he took his life, where he, he talks about uh, that you know, nothing is resolved, n nothing is settled. Remembering cannot become mere memory. You know? And this idea of not resolving things and not settling things within a text... Um, within the act of, act of writing or the act of remembrance is quite extraordinary. And that absolutely is, is something you, you, you quite, seems to me so central to, to, to your, really, to the, your credo, really, of, 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 of writing, which I feel this, these new essays have been, where you talk about not resolving things. Can I read you? Can I read you to yourself, Andre? Uh, okay, <laughs> um, you talk about the unthinkable, imponderable, impalpable, fluid, transitory, incoherent zone of the irrealis mood, a verbal mood to express what might never, couldn't, shouldn't, wouldn't possibly occur, but that might just happen all the same. This idea of almost the sort of imminence of possibility within a, within a mood. Isn't that the same thing that Jean Amory is talking about? I think so. I think so, because there's a wonderful sentence that he uses, and he says that once you've been through what the Nazis have done to you personally, you have lost trust in the world. And it is this very concept of trust in the world. When you no longer trust the world, the whole reality mechanism called the world, once you have lost that, then you have no place, you are not in time, you are basically floating about through the... And, and it's ironic that many of those survivors who have become writers ended up taking their own lives. Celan. Paul Celan. Yes, yeah, Celan and Primo Levi, if he did, in fact, yeah, commit yeah, suicide, yeah, I'm yeah. sure he did. Mm. Uh, all these people were not able to um, refine something about reality that they needed in order to go on living. They had lost it. 
And it, it has to do with place. It might have to do with even the planet itself. And it has to do with time. You just no longer are part of humanity, as it were. You're just faking it. And one of the things that I, I suspect both of us are doing, if not as writers, maybe as human beings as well, is that I've always had the feeling that maybe I am pretending to be one of you guys, but I'm really not entirely sure that I am. Uh, in other words, I'm from a different planet. I'm from a different sense of identity. I have different sort of baggage that nobody can understand. I just have to speak your language. I have to write for you so that you can understand me and so that I can understand myself as well through the language. But at the same time, uh, I'm not one of you guys. This is so extraordinary and so important, Andre, but not one of you guys. So tell me about the language of not being one of your guys. Because, again, you know, you think of... Oh, I, this is extraordinary. You think of Jean Amery and, in some ways, not being able to finish the es his essays. You know, not wanting, not being able to put that final... Um, um, you know, they, they run out... Um, into the page um, without finishing. You think of Celan, those late poems, you know, breaking the language open. You know, there's more white space than words in those last books of poems. I mean, extraordinary. Um, and, and then I, I, I think, of, I think I have to say, Andre, I think of your extraordinary self-definition of being an almost writer. I know, or, you know, use the, I, you know, Please tell me about being an almost writer, because this, is, this chimes deeply with what you're saying about not being one of those guys. Almost. Tell me about almost. Well, it's, it's, it's essentially... I mean, I'm particularly interested in my career as a writer, but it, it, it would mean nothing if it didn't reverberate on my career as a human being, as a person... <laughs> who lives with other people, who takes the subway with them, who basically walks the city, throws the garbage out at night, and all those regular things that we all do. But then when we go back into our little hovel, which is our study or our room or our desk, our computer, there we basically reimagine our lives as we wish they were or as wish they had turned out. And... But then even the reimagining, and this is where I'm coming to the almost, uh, it's, it's, it's as if, and I'm using as if as another way of saying almost, uh, because nothing is ever precise. I have to nail down what it is that I want to say in order to believe what I have just said, knowing full well that as I'm writing it, as I'm writing that very sentence, I'm already disassembling it because I don't trust it. It is only words, and writers are supposed to love words, and I don't trust them, because I don't trust anything. I don't trust anybody who believes in anything. So I'm almost always saying almost, because it, it's, everything is an approximation. Nothing is ever real, and it will change its mind on me the moment I look back. My, I mean, goodness. I mean, that's, that's an extraordinary framing of, of, 
um, the, the, the fissile nature of what you're doing. You know, each, each, each sentence, each paragraph, each book is, you know, is, is an attempt to, to, start, to start again and it falls apart and you start again. And, but nothing, but, but it, 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 yes. it, doesn't, it doesn't tell me more. It's really extraordinary. This is, this is, uh, this is why I make pots, Andre. <laughs> I make pots because, <laughs> this is why I make pots. I make pots because I can, I can see what I've made. You know, I, I can spend, I, this morning I was making bowls just up here in my studio, just, you know, the other side of the studio. And, uh, I, I, and there is a, a quiddity, a, 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 a thisness to, uh, to, to being able to pick up a bowl, feel the weight, the balance, the warmth of it, and put it down again in the world. Um, and it's, it's, it actually isn't going to move until it leaves the studio and goes off on its travels. But, but when I'm writing, <laughs> You turn your back, and it does disappear. It does. It doesn't behave. It, it's. It's elsewhere. That's right. And I, I. I totally, totally believe that. I, I, and I. I think that we're. We're. You. You use the word the, the quiddity of this. I wash dishes. I love washing the dishes, mm. because there's something extremely yes. real and sort of anchoring about dishes. I mean, you create the dishes. I wash them. Okay, so we have a, a corporation going on here. But exactly, we're a team. <laughs> yes. No, but it, it's it's ironic because I love doing dishes. I mean, we have a dishwasher, but I like to wash them before they go into the dishwasher because it is. If I call it therapy, but it's not just therapy. It is something that is very grounding standing by the sink and washing and putting soap on the sponge and washing those dishes. Um, and I do many things that will give me a sense of belonging on this planet. And then when I decide to write, it's the same thing that you mentioned. It disappears. It basically, uh, you put it down in words. You have the sentence that you wanted. It has all the rhythm and the cadences that you wish it would have. And then you turn your back or you turn off your computer and you come back the next morning and you say, but this was terrible. Let me redo it all over again. And, and it, it's a form of, um, it's insatiable. But I wanted to ask you a totally... It, it is insatiable. Yeah, it, but I wanted to ask you another question. It may not seem related, but it is. Because one of the grounding things that I have never done, and I suspect you never have done, is we never reclaimed an, our property. The property that belonged to our family. That is ours. It is not anybody else's. It is ours. And I have never sought out legal opinions, legal advice, never hired a lawyer on retainer or otherwise. To I've, I've hired lawyers when I fell and broke my arm, but I've never have done anything to reclaim my property. In other words, I have abandoned something that means the most to me. And I don't know how you fit in that. I mean, as a writer, I can go back to, to everything. That's so interesting, absolutely fascinating. I, I mean, I've, I, you know, um, I have a very um, equivocal 
relationship with rest, the idea of restitution, the idea of reclaiming things. Um, it, it, it's, it's, you know, it's, it, it, in my family's case, it's been complicated by lost art collections and property and all kinds of things. Um, but it, it's also, uh, for me, and people say to me, you know, around, since I, I wrote The Heaven Amber Eyes, they said, you know, have you got everything back? You know, can't I recommend a lawyer? All this sort of stuff. You know, uh, and basically, I just don't want to be in the company of lawyers. I mean, <laughs> you know, that's one thing. <laughs> that's straightforward. But a second, a second, more kind of a, a, a deeper response to it is that I think that writing, I think that writing something is such a, an unbelievably effective act of restitution because you turn it on its head. You don't, you say, well, all these Nazis and Austrians stole, stole all this property. What did they lose? They lost our family. You know, they lost our family from Vienna. They lost all these extraordinary people and possibilities and stuff. And so by actually you do this thing, which is to take your family back into the narrative, into the story, back to Vienna, back to Paris, and you're restituting something. You're not waiting for someone to give you something back. You're, doing it, you're finding the agency actually as a storyteller to do it. And surely... The act of restitution is, you know, you can think of, you think of literature as, can think of literature as restitution in, in a much more interesting way, because it's much more, you know, you've taken your family back to Alexandria in a, in a very profound way. You might not have the house or, or you, know, you know, which might be quite nice, but they can't, they can't, you know, that, that replacing of a family is something which I found is actually hugely moving and, 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 and much more complicated than the lawyer bit. You're totally right. And uh, a friend of mine uh, basically was put on the kinder transport. Um, he's the father of a friend of mine. And they were put on the kinder transport, he and his brother, and they were taken to England, where they were considered enemy aliens because they were Germans, but they were Jewish, of course. That's an old narrative. But eventually... 40, 50 years later, he went back to Germany with his son, my friend, and they went back to visit the house, and they were very gently and very nicely received by the city, by the mayor of the town, by everything. In other words, they were welcomed back, but nobody gave them back their property. The house where this man had grown up was basically belonging to somebody else who welcomed him into his house and, and, and said, you know, please make yourself comfortable. But he never said, I'll give you back your house. And for me, the act of writing, however grand it is and however satisfying it is to us, the writers, there's also the correlate which is not resolved and cannot be resolved, partly because we no longer want it to be resolved. We prefer it to remain a transient narrative as opposed to one that has been locked down and resolved and our restitution has been given back, everything has been given back to us and things are now fine with us. It would be like Proust realizing that he has recaptured the past and now he can go on living as a regular human being. Not possible. That's not what he was after to begin with. So, and I think that's, this is true of both you and me. We don't want it resolved. 
Yeah, yeah, yeah. This, and it's surely because we live in a state of desire. that's the generative power of desire is that it makes you think and read and write uh, uh, and create doesn't it that's why we read Proust that's why we read Rilke for God's sake Um, um, because because it's not it's not about conclusions The the world is not conclusion Basically, it is inconclusive. We want it inconclusive because then we can lodge ourselves into this inconclusive universe that we create and need to think about. As long as it's inconclusive, then everything is, to use the word that I use, everything becomes an almost. Nothing is tangible. Nothing is fixed or lodged or anchored or rooted. Uh, Everything can become something else. Everything is is transient and one of the things that I make fun of myself when I speak to people about my books I always say I'm writing the same book again and again and again and I'm writing the same essay time and again because I cannot resolve the fundamental issue and that fundamental issue is insoluble so I have to try again I try again try again try again absolutely We're going to take a brief break to hear from Buxton Books, one of the amazing independent booksellers that is supporting Always Authors. When we come back, we're going to share our Desert Island books. Buxton Books is proud to be a season sponsor of the Always Authors podcast. Buxton Books is located in downtown Charleston, South Carolina on King Street. And we are a full-service, independent bookstore that also specializes in presenting one-of-a-kind literary events. Please come visit us in Charleston or online at buxtonbooks.com to purchase books and to receive our newsletter for information on events and booksellers' recommendations. We ship anywhere in the United States and internationally. Happy reading from Buxton Books. Hi, I'm Carrie Mayer, author of the national best-selling book, The Paris Bookseller. So I'm not just a writer, I'm an avid reader. And since Always Authors is sponsored by Bookfinity, I wanted to tell you a little bit more about it. Bookfinity is a website that is built by readers for readers. So you can get personalized book recommendations, create and share your book lists, review books, and refer friends to earn rewards. You start by taking a quick quiz to discover your reader type. And once you complete the quiz, you'll be taken to your My Bookfinity account. I took the quiz and got my reader type. I am a heroin addict, which is so accurate because I do love strong female leads. Now, when I log into my Bookfinity account, I will get personalized book recommendations based on my reader type. Bookfinity also has a like it or lose it function, so I can quickly like the books that I'm interested in or lose the ones that I'm not. And it has a unique review system that goes beyond a star rating. I love that I can review a book based on how it made me feel and recommend it to others. To get started, visit bookfinity.com and take the reader type quiz and create your personalized account today. Well, these are books, these are books for Andre. So I have Mahmoud Dawish, which you must know. Yes, and I've never read it though. Amazing, amazing Palestinian poet. Um, extraordinary. In the presence of absence. Beautiful, beautiful, beautiful. And in a very, very good Arabic uh, translation. Uh, Victor Segalen. Oh, whom I don't know either. 
Hooray! I've managed to get a book across that you haven't read. <laughs> gives me such pleasure. <laughs> These are just things that I've been reading and rereading and thought you might enjoy. And then, do you know Anne Truett, the, um, the extraordinary American sculptor? No, no, I don't. Um, no. Um, who was a great, who was one, one, one of the great sort of heroes of 1960s sculpture, who actually was, wrote an extraordinarily beautiful series of journals about her practice. So they're completely, I'm so thrilled. I've been looking at my shelves and thinking, damn it, what on earth do I give Andre? <laughs> no, there's only one book that I recommend because it's actually, I think it's my favorite book of all. And it's The Peloponnesian War by Thucydides. I think it is the most profound, distressing, sad book uh, indictment of humanity that I've ever read in my whole life. Uh, and it's just so intelligent. It reminds me of one other person who's extremely intelligent and very creative, and that's Johann Sebastian Bach. You, you can almost touch the intelligence. It is not no longer just a cognitive faculty, but it is a way of feeling things with intelligence. Um, the only other person I know who's like that is Pascal, the, the French writer, philosopher, whatever. Intelligence, and, and because you always feel very stupid in comparison. I do. Uh, because I, I just don't have that capacity to be so brilliant in analyzing people. And that's always what I wanted to do. So if you haven't read Thucydides in many years, maybe it's time to revisit. <laughs> Thank you. I, I'm, I'm off to the bookstore. <laughs> There's this idiotic um, thing that people say is, you know, they ask about genre. Oh, yes. You know, is there a more, <laughs> you know, God help us. You know. And, you know, they, they don't ask about voice, but they ask about genre. And they say, you know, is, is it, you know, is it, what is this? Is this, this auto? I can't remember the horrible news. There's a new auto fiction. Name. Auto I hate that fucking thing. <laughs> auto fiction. Isn't that just disgusting thing? You know, memoir, yes. hideous, creative nonfiction, foul. You know, it's a book. It's a book. It's another book. It's an essay. It might somehow be a kind of novel. But the relationship of of putting yourself back into the world. No, seems to me that the the, 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 the the crucial the crucial act, the almost act of, 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 of beginning again. I have to say that this collection of essays that you've just published, and it's it's here it's here in in the UK in a very beautiful edition. It must be is it a similar edition in, in with um, in America that's just come out? You know, Freud, Kavafi, Sebald, Römer. Uh, Proust, Beethoven, and Corot. Uh, uh, honestly, um, you wrote it for me. Why didn't you dedicate your book to me? These are all people <laughs> that, I, that I, I... I was looking for your essay on Rilke. Damn it, why haven't you written... Have you written about Rilke? No, never no. have. I wouldn't dare, because I've never read German well enough to be able to comment on the poetry. I read, for example, Rilke in English in translation. Um, I forget the name of the man who translated it. He used to teach at Washington University. 
Not it, Leishman, no. Who? No, he's he's he wrote a book on being blue. Uh, I forget you you you. Uh, mm. I forget his name. He's mm. very famous, but he's mm. dead. And and I I read Celan in French, believe it or not, because my yes. German is yes. not up to par. But then he translated the poems himself into French. I think he trans. Celan's translations are extraordinary because he translates all the time. Yes. I mean, I. I've never actually read anyone writing about Ceylon's translations. So that's 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 something to think about. Actually, that would be very very interesting. As you know, I obsess about Ceylon, and I recently made a, a book, um, artist's book. It's just a book. I printed on extraordinarily beautiful paper um, all my favourite Ceylon poems. A huge edition in, in German and English, and then I. I washed the pages with porcelain slip. The poems disappeared under porcelain. And then I rewrote the poems again in hand, by hand over it. So it was a sort of palimpsest. It was just me trying to understand him by, 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 by actually by writing them again, um, which was a kind of way of basically, actually, Andre, it was a kind of slowing down of reading. Um, because I knew them really well. I was worried that I, I was reading them too fast. So in this rather roundabout way, I printed a book <laughs> and lost the poems and then rewrote them. Um, but isn't that something that we all do, that we, when we're rereading the things we care about, you remake the poem in, in the reading of the, or you translate it into a different language, or you find a different way of returning to the poem. Or you look at, at a different translation of it just in order to be confronted yeah. by it for the first time, or maybe a better time than the previous one. Uh, I have to make a, 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 mm. an interruption here because, uh, to go into open a parenthesis, I meant, uh, because the first time that I read Proust, and I must have been, what, 13, 14, um, I was reading Proust not in a book, but in a notebook that my father had kept and where he used to copy all this favorite, any quotation that he liked. And he would write, copy pages from Proust, many pages, in his own handwriting. So my introduction to Proust was through my father's own rescripting of Proust and copying Proust. And of course, there were points where moments where he would put three dots and ellipses in order to say, well, this went on for too long. That's not the part I was interested in. Yes. <laughs> and of course, that's totally plausible with Proust because there are times when you say, stop it already. <laughs> stop it, yes. But that's extraordinary. So you read... You read in your father's yes. handwriting. I talk about Oedipal, of course. Proust. Okay. <laughs> yeah, I mean, this is just, this is, this is, damn it, this is another book, I have to say. I mean, what an extraordinary reading. I, but, 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 is, but that makes total sense, doesn't it, as a first reading? I mean, isn't that extraordinary to have had that Well, it's encounter? like what you do with Ceylon. It's the same idea of basically rewriting either in your own handwriting or seeing it written by someone else that happens to also sort of be blood relative in that case and your father on top of everything so that raises issues but at the same time it is if you are trying to mold yourself into the poem 
to become the poem by rewriting it or by uh, recopying it yet another. What tells you that you can't recopy it yet again if you like that poem so much? You can do it two times, three times. Th that's the nature of a real palimpsest is that it has three, four, five, six layers, as Freud knew so well. Exactly. I mean, yes. Back to back to Bergasse. <laughs> Up the staircase. Yes. Did you go? Did Knock you on go his to door. His... We let in. Did you go to that place? To the, the, the... Of course. Of course. Of course. I, I never have. Of course. Of course. There was a, a, a great great aunt of mine who was who was analysed yes, by you, him, you. Um, who 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 my grandmother couldn't bear. Um, but um, yes, so you know, Freud <laughs> Freud emerges and reemerges and. Uh, and then gets buried again. Uh, uh, but 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 I love that. I love I love the idea of you reading Proust in that in that way. I I I have my actually I have my grandmother's copy. She bought it as it as it was published. Oh so God! So you have that edition in Paris. I have that edition, which is a hopeless edition. Of course, it's an absolutely rubbish edition. Um, hugely badly printed, misprints, pages all over the place. Uh, but but it's but it's my edition now. Um, so that's my priest. I mean, uh, uh, where do we go? <laughs> where do we go, Andre? I, actually, I know, I have, a, I have a really important question to ask you, which is that we share another thing <laughs> which I really want to ask you about, which is that we both wrote books about our families, and then our families read those books. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> so I want to ask you about... <laughs> And this is, I can only do with you. I don't think I can do it with anyone else in the world, Andre. What was, I could, it was pretty hard for me. What was it like for you? It, it was, it, well, it was hard. It was difficult because uh, my father was known for his amorous affairs while he was married to my mother until the very end of his life. Uh, and that was a given, and she never put up with it. She hated it. So... Uh, when I put it on paper, I was making it official, and my mother had friends here in New York who were going to read the book and find out about her husband's infidelities. And as for my father, he wasn't too pleased either because he doesn't come out like a very nice man, especially to his son, where he was very strict and basically, you fend for yourself enough of this, study your poem in Arabic, I don't care, whoever, you know, whatever happens to you. Um, yeah. There was a bit of that. But the one that was really offended was someone in England, and she is my father's cousin, and therefore my, my cousin as well, um, my second cousin. And she said, how dare you say this about my father, who is the character of Uncle Vili? And I said, it is not Uncle yes. Vili. I mean, I've, this is a character that was drawn from various people in the family. And she said, no, it is my father because you gave the place where he lives, which is in Surrey, and he basically inherited this entire sort of mansion because of his spy work. And she hated the thought that her father had been a, a sort of glamorous spy. And, and so she threatened to sue me. And I said, please, please, sue me. Uh, it would be great publicity for me. But th there were people who were not happy. The fact that my mother's deafness was mentioned was a anathema to many people in the family. And I don't know about you. I mean, this is just a sampling of the people who reacted to my book. Worst of all is my brother, who is not even in the book. 
So his wife was very upset. Because he was left out. He was totally left out. Yeah. Yes. Yeah. The way that Proust left out his brother too. And so, it made for a better book. Exactly. So you have... You so have anyway, always, how about you? Well, really, <laughs> snap, as one of my children would say. You know, absolutely the same. I mean, um, really difficult. I mean, on all levels. I mean, difficult. Um, there were cousins because my... My grand, my great grandmother had lots of affairs, and and so there were, you know, there were cousins who, who's, you know, I just it's, it was just common knowledge in Vienna that she had this great love affair, and that one of her children was not with my great grandfather. I thought that was rather wonderful. Yes, in my innocence, yeah. uh, they didn't like it at all. My my father found it quite complicated being outed as being Jewish, having been the you know the. Anglican Dean of Canterbury for, you know, a, a, a Christian minister, you know, but, but has made a great accommodation. It was actually hugely helpful and it was a very significant part of it. And my ah. mother, I didn't mention my mother in the book. She still hasn't, she's 93 now, she hasn't forgiven me. Uh, but, but that wasn't, the, you know, but the book wasn't about her. <laughs> you know? So, but, but, but the point being, you know, uh, the, the, uh, au fond, I mean, the point is that, is that if you tell a family story, other people who aren't writers, who have no intention of, of writing anything, or feel that you've taken their story from them, that they, somehow yes. you've ocu yes. occupied this narrative space. You know, you know, and someone came up to me and said, I could have written that, your book. I thought, well... <laughs> why did you? <laughs> why the hell didn't you? you know? But the point being, you know, back to the almost thing, which is that, you know, this... The voice, the voice within your book, within my book, is a, it's 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 a it's an attempt. It's a it's a it's a it's an open text. <laughs> it's saying this is this is my understanding and my uh, uh, and my journey into trying to work out who the hell I am, and how I've ended up in this particular place with all these extraordinary complex. Uh, uh, unresolved feelings and, and memories and, 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 and desires. Um, write your own book. Write your own book. But, but this yeah. is mine. But it, I, I just needed... I, Andre, I so needed to share the fallout with you. <laughs> <laughs> well, the fallout is, is never going to go away, you know, because um, a lot of people were not hurt by what happened in the book. They were not hurt or damaged by it, but they felt that I was, as you said, you, 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 to use the other word that has become very chic, you were colonizing them. You colonized their story and taken it and, or appropriated it. And, and now it's become yours and it cannot be theirs any longer, though they could very well sit down and write their own version of it. It would be probably even better. Who knows? Uh, but they'll never do that. And, uh, and they will be angry. And that's what it is. And people are angry. And, but in my case, most of the people in the book have died. And their descendants don't really care much. And they've basically looked the other way and moved on. Which is basically what I wanted. I didn't want anything Has to Has anyone fester tried to make a film of that book? About a reading? Oh, They've spoken about it. Mm. Uh, somebody even bought an option once upon a time years ago. Mm. Um, but 
it's it, for some reason it's not it they don't nobody wants period pieces apparently unless it's uh, England in the Victorian age and everybody's wearing Laura Ashley patterns uh, <laughs> that's about the extent of what people want as far as period is concerned uh, they, they love sort of that, that sort of period but otherwise they don't want that has anybody made a film of yours? No, I mean it's endlessly kind of people talk, but I mean you know I, I um. I have no expectations, <laughs> which is probably a useful a useful place to be. Um, um, I mean like the whole world, call me by your name was just extraordinary. And did you write that the script for that? I can't remember. No, no, Were you I, involved I did. In the script? Uh, James Ivory wrote the, the, the script. Many people did the script, and eventually it fell in the, the, to the task of James Ivory to do it. And then it was changed quite radically by the, the, the director, Luca Guadagnino, so that I didn't have much. I didn't want to have any say. I figured, I've had my say. I published the book. You want to make a movie? Go ahead. And, uh, and I left it at that. And uh, so... But, but it, it's done well, and I'm happy that the, the book, of course, sold quite well as a result of the film. So it, it, it accomplished a purpose in my life. I think there's something, there's this huge honour in just in letting other people do with, do with it something different. I think that's absolutely right, rather than pretending you have any agency in a Hollywood film. <laughs> Shooting of a Hollywood film about your no, own book. It, it's it's and I'm I'm very I hate when authors get upset because a director did something that they were not intending to do in their book. Uh, it's it's not your business. You've had your say. Let somebody else have their time with it and let them enjoy doing what they want so to do. So I really want to know what you're writing now, Andre. What's happening? Well, I'm I'm writing a a memoir to use that term, of my year in Rome after leaving Egypt and what happened to me. and So it's not exactly the same thing as having this magnificent cast of characters. It becomes totally me. And, and so it becomes a more self-referential kind of book with very little plot. So I'm, I'm not sure yet how it's going to turn out, but that's what I'm doing. But I wanted to ask you a question about the Commando book, which I have not read. And, and, and the irony is that we both are... I will send you a copy. <laughs> okay, fine. Uh, but that involves going to the post office, which is a horrible thing to I, do. I, that I can do, Andre, <laughs> with pleasure. But the, the, the Commando book is interesting because we both are fascinated by the Commandos. Because in, in, in a sense, they represent uh, a totally extinct family. Absolutely. So, Which I, I think it's it is extinct. It is. So as, yeah. as, as you know, Istanbul, a Constantinople Jewish family, um, arrives in, in Paris, 1868, exactly the same time as my own family. And they build houses 10 doors away from each other on the Rue de Monceau. And, and, and you know, the extraordinary thing about... The, the museum um, that's created there, that, that remarkable collection, that remarkable house, is that it is untouched since 1936, uh, since the will, so since, since he died, and, and, and then, of course, his 
daughter and my cousins were murdered in Auschwitz. So, I mean, the reason I wrote that book was I just simply had to write the book. And I've known that house. I've known that house forever. I've been in it constantly. I remember my grandmother talking about visiting there in the 1920s. Um, so there was this sort of this sort of force field around it as a place because, Andre, because, 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 of course, it's got that extraordinary thing of being a memorial for the wrong reason. You know, he, he, he creates it as a memorial for his, his son who dies in the First World War, but it becomes a memorial to the family who are killed in, 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 in the Holocaust. So this, 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 this extraordinary complexity of, of one, one memorial not fitting the shape of another. Uh, and it's that sort of that emotional space that I wanted to explore with this, this book. So it's, it's in the form of letters to, to, to Moise de Camondo. Uh, but, but the epigraph would please you, I hope, because <laughs> the epigraph is lacrimae rerum, the tears of things, from, from Virgil or from the Aeneid. So lacrimae rerum, the tears of things. It's, about, it's, it's trying to understand what is still present in that house um, when the, ha the, family are, the family aren't there. That was my one-minute stump speech. <laughs> <laughs> no, but I was, I was wondering, one of the things I heard, and I may, I read two books. There are two books on the commandos that I know. Yeah. Um, mm. And uh, one is by, what's his name? The, the, the brother of the publisher, uh, oh, um, Asuline. Yes. Asuline. Yeah, yeah, and then Asuline. there's the, the yeah, yeah. yeah, the other one is there too. But I was interested in, basically, as soon as they died, somebody locked the house and they didn't open the house until after the war. Is that true? No, it's not true. It's not oh. true. So the extraordinary thing is it's given to the state in 1936 by the family mm -hmm. under the will of the Comte Camondo. So he gives it in his will. It's, it becomes a very popular museum in Paris in the late 1930s. Oh. See, I didn't know that. And then because it's the property of the French, because it's the property of the French state, it's, not a, it's no longer a I Jewish see, house. I see, I see, I see. So it's not looted, it's not pillaged, it's not taken over or ransacked, even though, my God, you know, the whole of that street were full of Jewish houses, as you know. I mean, Rue de Monceau. And they're all destroyed. But, but so the house is untouched and the collection is untouched, even though, you know, uh, Beatrice Camondo and her husband and my cousins are all deported. And so then in 1946, they put a tiny little marble plaque up in the, in the Porte Cochère saying, you know, for Beatrice Reinach and the, the Camondo family, um, you know, uh, and, and people just walk straight, you know, it's, it's yeah, barely know. there. It's barely there. You go into the house and the house is, you know, people just don't, don't it's, it's, it's so strange. It's so strange. That's another one of those things. And I went the first time with my father to the Camondo Museum. Did you? Yes, because he wanted to see it. I mean, the, the name was familiar to him from his growing up in Istanbul or Constantinople. And so he wanted to see the museum and said, why don't you come with me? So I went with him. 
And that's the first time I went there. I went there many times as well, but not sort of as an arbitrary, the way you might have been, um, because I wanted to do something about the commandos. And I never, I even spoke to a gentleman who uh, was a sort of wealthy banker here in New York, uh, Ezra Zilka. I don't know if you ever met him, but he belonged to the Zilka family that were Iraqi Jews who basically founded an Egyptian bank. And I asked him, how did the commandos make their money? This is ordinary question. And nobody seems to know. I mean, other than as money lenders, you know. But you know that your family comes because they were in wheat. Uh, they speculated on wheat. Yes. Is that correct? Yes. Yeah. Yes. Uh, That's correct. Odessa. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. And uh, so yeah. there's, a, yeah. there's something real there. But nobody knows how the commandos made their fortune. So what's the extraordinary thing is, Andre? So you, you've been around the museum, but there's a, a, a particular door... <laughs> on the third floor, near, near, near the bedroom of Nisim de Camondo. You open that door, and it takes you into the whole hidden service wing of the house and the attics, and it's absolutely extraordinary. So the, you go in, and there's the old butler's pantry in the silver rooms where they kept their silver, and you go up further, and there are all the rooms where the valets had their... You know, you open a cupboard, and it's full of Louis Vuitton trunks from 1925 or light fittings from 1910, or Louis Cow's chairs in another. But up there is a storeroom that had been locked, which has all the banking records from 1850. Oh. They're all there. There's oh a whole God. archive okay. up there in the attics. Uh, you know, and there's, there's, there's all the things he buys and the little receipts. There's, there's letters from Proust up there. Uh, you know, etc., etc. Et but it's all there, hidden away in the house. So there's the public-facing side to the house, and then you know, it's that wonderful cinematic moment, I have to say, of opening a different door. You know, and you go from sort of extraordinary polished floors to a kind of raw oak underfoot, uh, and then you're in the in, in this archival world, which is completely intact. It's absolutely bizarre. So up there are the records. That's funny, because I didn't know that. I mean, 1850 goes back quite a bit. It does. It does. Yes. It does. Um, and there is that absolutely compulsive feeling there um, of, of someone who's thinking that he wants to pass something on. You know, so he's keep, he keeps absolutely everything. I mean, you know, the, every single receipt from his wine merchant... <laughs> Or the you know the the receipts for his collar studs from the you know <laughs> they're all there, um, you know, alongside all the treasures and everything else. So there's this sort of there's this sort of plangent to use word the feeling of someone who wants who's trying desperately to hold something together and pass it on to an, you know into the future, which of course he spectacularly fails not to do. Yeah, he fails not to do. Okay, well said. That's very well said. Anyway, maybe we have a few minutes to talk about our dear beloved Proust or Zebald, whichever one you you wish to speak about. Uh, uh, we. Oh my God! Where well, should we go? You mentioned Proust many times in the book, and of course he's a he's inspired by the family, your family, and. Um, but I think that there's, it's the whole book is, your book is 
And I suspect mine too, because I mentioned, I don't mention Proust by name, but it is, yes. a, it's an allegation. He's, oh, yeah. he's there, he's and, there. And, but it's, it's, again, it's the attempt to reinvent the past or recreate, if you prefer to use that term. But I think it's imagination and altering certain things, not so that you can live with them, but so that you can write them. And I think that that is how we, I like to use the word to hijack. We hijack the past in order to be able to narrate it, because otherwise we wouldn't know how to do that. I would never know how to write uh, about my family as it was. Yes. So I absolutely, that's said much more beautifully than I could possibly say it. It's that beautiful impossibility of going, of, 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 re, of return, <laughs> the instability of it, the, you know, um, and that's, that's, that I learned from Proust. I mean, that's, that's, you know, you can't try and do this kind of work without having in some way that the sort of somatic memory of those sentences in you, those sort of, you know, the, the, the turns of those, of, of, of Proust's, sentences sort of embodied somehow in, 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 in the way that you you try and do it. I, that's a rubbish way of putting it on it. It's absolute rubbish. We've talked for an hour. I'm losing, I'm losing my grip. <laughs> no, no, no. You, you know, I'm, I'm going to uh, lose my way, lose my way in a Proustian sentence. But I never want to emerge. read something. I will read something because you use the word return and you use it quite a few times in the book. But I will quote, may I? May I quote from your book? I'd be honored. Like the, re okay. like the repeated themes in the Netsuke, Japanese prints also give the possibility of the series. 47 views of the famous mountain suggested a way of returning in different ways and reinterpreting formal pictorial elements. Haystacks, the bend of the river, poplars, the cliff face of Rouen Cathedral, all share this poetic return. The idea of a poetic return. In other words, we, we don't only want to go back once. We want to go back many, many, many times. Maybe because the return is imperfect each time, or maybe because we love returning. We love just this, the simple fact of going back. That could be the most perfect ending or pausing <laughs> of a conversation. The simple act of going back, absolutely. I mean, Andre, that's, that's it. Maybe we should end here since we have the... But I, I do think this, it, it is something that means a lot, I think, to both of us. Um, we need to return... Uh, Maybe because returning is, to put it paradoxically, if I may, it's our way of going forward. It's by returning. Like, as my father used to say, you are like a shrimp. It works, it's, it goes forward by going backward. Uh, he used to call me that. And so, but I, I, that's why I'm particularly sensitive to this whole notion of returning. The, the idea of the nostos, as the Greeks used to call it. Yes, yes, yes. It's absolutely there. And I think 
I think it's I think it's also there in it's sort of there in the Psalms really it's there in the sense of of you know the, the repeated uh, return to the songs of exile you know you 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 actually it, you know you never can fully return but you can return to the singing of the songs the Psalms you know in all their yes. beauty and anger <laughs> and cadence and then, yes. you know. So, well, so, that's why we're we're the people of the book, yeah. of, actually, as the they used the to book. call us. Yes, indeed. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> All right. I think this is, is a good place to end. It's a wonder, Andre. Such a such a gorgeous invitation from you. I've absolutely loved this hour. Honestly, I really have. Thank you so much, and Edmund, for me as well, absolutely. And if I come to London or if you come to New York. We'll just have to sit and at least have a meal, not a cup of coffee. We have to have a meal. Exactly. <laughs> okay. I'd love that. Please. Yes, please. Absolutely. All right. You're Thank on. you again very Thank much, you. Edmund. Thank you. Bless you. Thank you for listening. Please visit alwaysauthors.com to learn about upcoming episodes, to read a transcript of this episode, to buy the books discussed here, and for more information about our sponsors, bookfinity.com and Buxton Books. Always Authors is an exclusive production of Atomic Focus Entertainment. Cheers.